ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. The National Anti-Corruption Commission commences operation this week. Commissioner Paul Brereton described this as a historic moment. Senior counsel Geoffrey Watson is a director at the Centre for Public Integrity. He's also a former counsel assisting the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption, ICAC. And he's also a former New South Wales Police Integrity Commissioner. Geoffrey Watson, do you agree that this is indeed a historic moment? Undoubtedly. We agree 100%. Why is that? Well, it's been a startling omission that in a federal system, the only place in the Federation without an anti-corruption body was the central government. I mean, that's just striking in its own right. But I could go back, Damien. You know that we're signatories to an international covenant agreeing on anti-corruption measures and that the absence of such a commission like this was arguably a breach of that treaty. It's historic, it's important. We've put together something in place which can improve government, also restore confidence, and let's not ignore the issue of, uh, uh, as it were, vengeance, that some people will get their comeuppance. That's a good thing. Now, NACC Commissioner Paul Berriton says he will publicly call out attempts to politicise or weaponise referrals to the body. How necessary was that warning, do you think? Well, it's obviously pretty necessary. Just before I came on here, I watched an interview with Mr Dutton, who said we shouldn't uh, be politicising any complaints about integrity about Mr Robert. They should be referred to the Integrity Commission. Recently resigned MP Stuart Robert. Stuart Robert. But yes, that would be the same Integrity Commission that Mr Dutton fought tooth and nail to prevent being set up. I mean, okay, you shouldn't be using this as a political tool. Whoever uses an anti-corruption tool, it's going to have an educative role, a consultative role and an investigative role. And put them all together, it's going to be a powerful operation. Now, since the 1st of July, the NACC has already received 44 referrals. The Greens have revealed that they've made a formal referral to the body about PwC for its misuse of confidential government tax policy information. Do you support that public move to to make that referral? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think that's a huge issue in our community at the moment. And it can fall within the auspices of the Federal Commission. I've got one doubt about that because we still haven't seen the arrangement under which PwC was retained. But uh, assuming that they are a deemed public official, then it would be within the jurisdiction of the Federal Commission. Now, the point is, if the Federal Commission says, no, hold on, this is a matter better dealt with by the ordinary police or judicial system, great. It can push the matter over there as well. It can make referrals of that kind. But it is important that it has the ability, if it sees fit, to look at this particular uh, allegation. 100%, because this actually goes to something deeper and darker than just merely what seems to be a pretty bad scandal. We can, through the Federal Commission, have a look at things like the efficacy of the non-disclosure agreements, which the federal agencies are entering with third-party private sector consultants. 
we can also have a look at the way in which information is controlled. And if there are failings there, a body like NAC will have the expertise to find them out and recommend changes which can eliminate them in the future. And address structural issues which potentially open the space or open us up to corruption. Exactly. That's what it's going to do. It's actually going to, hopefully, prevent corruption. Now, the investigative role is important because it can use its very ample powers to draw the people in, have a look at what's gone wrong, but then also have a look at how do we make sure this does not happen again. Also, there is a little bit of the role of the policeman on the beat looking over the shoulder of public officials, including politicians, and making sure that they're doing the right thing might encourage them to be a little bit more careful. Now, the NACC will be able to compel witnesses to give evidence. Will it also be able to compel the disclosure of communications between lawyers and their clients to to lift the veil on legal professional privilege? Yes. This was actually quite a sore point, much kicked around, I can tell you, during all of the preliminary discussions about the design of a federal body. And I wasn't completely happy with the resolution they got to. I wanted something like we have in New South Wales with ICAC, which is that you can, just for the purposes of the investigation within ICAC, cast aside, override legal professional privilege. Now, the Law Council of Australia didn't much like that, and a compromise position was struck so that federally the Commission will be able to do that, but it's got to do so in circumstances which, at least at first are done in private so that it can check that no damage is being done of a permanent kind in terms of legal professional privilege. Damien, I cannot tell you how important that power is. I was involved in some pretty heavy inquiries at ICAC and other places, and I can tell you it's the ability to see what the lawyers are advising that gives you a real insight into what's going wrong. And returning to PwC, all of the big accounting firms who are, I'm sorry to say, I'm not labelling PwC with this, but who are often used by crooked people as a kind of guide or assistance to launder the money, well, they've all got lawyers within the firm and they claim legal professional privilege over virtually every transaction. So you've got to be able to get over the top of that if you're going to do a good job. So especially given issues like PwC, it is very important to be able to lift the veil on legal professional privilege in your view. 100%. You'll see that in the early days when this PwC scandal was coming to light, PwC was able to fend off all of the initial inquiries from bodies which didn't have the power to override legal professional privilege simply by making that claim. When you look at the claim, quite often it's specious insofar as somebody with legal qualifications will be included on the email as no more than a cover, a beard, if you like, to uh, pretend that it was a matter upon which legal advice was being taken. Uh, It's just not right. And so you've got to get beyond that if you want to really do a good job. And so in some ways, the NACC, the the anti-corruption body, will have more powers than police in that regard, yeah? Oh, way more powers. That's something about the design of these organisations is that the police can go nowhere in a corruption inquiry because they won't get any cooperation. The point is that if you just say to the police, I'm not coming down or you get your lawyer to make the same call, that's the end of the inquiry. 
The police don't have automatic subpoena powers. They don't have powers to compel the production of documents. And if things are said to be subject to a legal professional privilege, police inquiry comes to an end. Damien, this whole idea is the one which underpins the idea of raw commissions, which routinely have these kinds of powers. If you're going to get at the truth, you need these powers of compulsion. Mind you, if the person is recommended to go back to the police or through the uh, judicial system, those privileges are restored and the person is protected. Okay, so that's a very good point in the conversation to turn to the decision or or the findings of ICAC, the the state's independent commission against corruption, vis-a-vis former Premier Gladys Berejiklian, which found that she had committed serious corrupt conduct in her dealings with former Wagga Wagga MP Daryl Maguire, with whom she was in an ongoing romantic relationship. Exactly what serious corrupt conduct did ICAC find that Gladys Berejiklian had committed? Well, in the main, it came through Ms Berejiklian's actions in recommending that grants be made, two different kinds of grants, in the seat of Wagga Wagga, to the advantage of her then partner, lover, I'm not sure about the right expression, a member of her love circle, She was doing that at a time when she wasn't revealing that she was in the relationship and hence gave rise to a conflict of interest. That conflict of interest in using then public money to give an advantage to somebody with whom you're in a relationship, well, that's serious corrupt conduct. So essentially, uh, the findings were around um, the Australian Clay Shooters Association. Uh, Darren Maguire was lobbying for a grant of money for that organisation and also the, the Riverina Conservatorium of Music. He was also lobbying uh, for a grant of money and uh, Gladys Berejiklian was involved in that grant process. To be clear, so ICAC makes a finding of serious corrupt conduct, but it doesn't recommend that the DPP, the New South Wales DPP, consider laying criminal charges against her. Now, that comes back to, to to what you were talking about before, whether or not a witness can be compelled to give evidence. Can you distinguish for me why ICAC is able to make that finding and why it then also says to the DPP, look, we're not recommending that you go forward with the prosecution. Can you explain to me or, or underline why it did that? When Ms Berichiklian was called to give evidence... She claimed privilege over her evidence. That meant that she was objecting to the use of that material, what she said, if it was self-incriminatory. I'm going to pause there and say that's not a promising start for the Premier or former Premier of New South Wales to be giving evidence under that claim, but nevertheless, that's what happened. What that means is that that evidence given at ICAC cannot be used against Ms Berichiklian by any of the conventional police investigators or in a judicial proceeding, the case has to be reproved. And it comes back to that issue I told you about earlier. Ms Berichiklian can't be compelled by the police to cooperate, and she presumably wouldn't. So Commissioner McColl said the prospects of her giving that evidence voluntarily was so remote that there were insufficient prospects of succeeding in a prosecution to even warrant a referral. Now, I see that some people are up in arms about this as though the absence of a referral like that means that the corruption wasn't serious, just the opposite. These kind of findings where there is corrupt conduct 
under the New South Wales statute, but no referral, that's actually probably 50% of all cases. The reason being that the broad statutory definition of corrupt conduct includes things which aren't criminal. Now, that can be old-fashioned pork barrelling, which was going on here. It can be a range of conflicts of interest, which was going on here. Those sorts of things are not criminal without more. And so you've got that distinction so that the probability is that, so Commissioner McColl found in what I'm calling a careful report, a prosecution wouldn't succeed. Now, that's a way that we preserve our rights as citizens, but you're not under a compulsion, never under a compulsion to incriminate yourself in judicial circumstances. Quite different when you're investigating to try and find corrupt conduct. So what you're highlighting there is that in a criminal prosecution, an accused can also always decide not to go into the witness box. That is their right. Uh, and if they've been previously compelled to go into the witness box, say, in an anti-corruption commission setting, that evidence can't then be repurposed or, or, or used in the criminal prosecution. Exactly. Now, shifting focus, while we've got you here, uh, Geoffrey Watson, SC, look, uh, in Victoria, there is... Uh, the ongoing fallout of the, of the Lawyer X scandal, the, the underworld criminal lawyer, Nicola Gobbo, who was also a police informer. And it's just been announced that the Office of the Special Investigator, which was set up to build criminal cases against police officers who used Gobbo as a police informant, that's going to be disbanded. And the head of that agency, uh, former High Court Justice Geoffrey Nettle, called for his office to be disbanded because the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions had decided not to prosecute any police officers, not to, if you like, act on the briefs that his office had provided her. What do you make of that decision of the DPP not to prosecute any police officers. Disgraceful, inexplicable and setting an appalling precedent. This is just awful. There was a most terrible scandal. You've got to understand that what the police did was they engaged in conduct which challenged two of the fundamentals of our system. It challenged the rule of law and that aspect of the rule of law where we say that everybody is entitled to a fair trial. Damien, it's often said that the rule of law is that nobody's above the law, but equally, it means that nobody's below the law, nobody's below its protection. And even if you don't like Tony Mockbell, he's entitled to a fair trial by Australian standards. The police, in conjunction with Ms Gobbo, undermined that. It then results in a Royal Commission, very expensive, excellent recommendations in the appointment of an outstanding Australian, Geoffrey Nettle, to consider whether prosecution should follow. Well, I would have said Blind Freddy could see that they need to follow. And his recommendations, which were detailed and carefully considered and moderate, recommended that they do. Now, I do not understand the position of the DPP. The DPP has said some of the events are too old. How does that sit with the same DPP as having presented the arguments, for example, against George Pell? Some of these instances are six years old. That's not old by legal standards. Also, the DPP said, oh, well, I don't think that some of the witnesses are reliable. Well, that's just treading straight into the area of the jury. And then I also saw the DPP say, oh, it'd be unlikely that Ms Gobbo would give evidence, which would mean that the prosecutions would fail. But as Mr Nettle has recorded... Ms Gobbo said she would give evidence. I don't understand it. And you know what's worse, Damien? 
what's the precedent that it sets? We now know nothing's going to happen, no consequences. Then finally, there's a cynical act of the government in Victoria, which said, are we going to act on Mr Nettles' recommendation that his office be wound up? No, that wasn't Mr Nettles' recommendation. His recommendations was that these prosecutions commence and be pursued. And he said, and if you're not going to do that, you might as well wind up the office. So the whole thing's, if you ask me, shameful. Very, very, very strong words. But look, the DPP, Kerry Judge, said she was not confident that uh, Nicola Gobbo would actually give the evidence that she has sort of implied that she might. And look, without that, what's the likelihood that, that any prosecution might be successful? And you need to make a decision about the likelihood of a successful prosecution if you're going to spend millions on this kind of series of trials. Ms Gobbo's evidence wasn't the only evidence. And not only that, Ms Gobbo said she would give the evidence. I do not know why anybody who comes from a legal background, say, like mine, would be looking at this and thinking, Geoffrey Nettle got it wrong. He is one of the most eminent jurists in Australia. Now, I don't know Kerry Judd. I don't know what her background is. But I just got a sensation that on these sorts of careful considerations... I'm going the way of Nettle rather than Judd. There needs to be an independent assessment of where to put your scarce resources. That has to be done. That, that, that's the job of the DPP, be it, uh, you know, in, in any case, in any part of the country. No, there was an independent assessment. That was Mr Nettle. Part of the problem with the DPP in asking the DPP to prosecute police officers is that it's like asking somebody to prosecute their principal client. That's why you had an independent person asked to make this assessment and it was made and now, because it didn't suit, it's been ignored. Strong words. Uh, Geoffrey Watson, SC, Director of the Centre for Public Integrity. He's also a former counsel assisting ICAC and also a former New South Wales Police Integrity Commissioner. Look, uh, a very interesting conversation. I I thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. It's my pleasure, Damien. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. Do follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Can the jury deliver justice in sexual violence cases? That's the question posed in a new courtroom novel titled Dice. Author Claire Bayless is better placed than most to tell a story about how jurors respond to evidence in a trial and what takes place in a jury deliberation room. That's because... Claire Bayless is a New Zealand jury researcher and legal academic who's been granted extraordinary access to jurors. And a warning, this conversation discusses sexual violence and child abuse. Claire Bayless, tell me about your book. In a nutshell, what's it about? It's about four boys who make up a sex game based on the throw of a dice and they end up charged with sexual offences against three girls. Now, the novel's the story of that trial, but it's told from the perspective of a diverse group of ordinary people, the jury. And it's about how the jurors' lives and beliefs impact on the trial and how the trial impacts their lives. Now, this, of course, is a work of fiction, but it is informed very much by your work as a legal researcher. 
interviewing jurors, this big trans-Tasman study which involved a, a team of Australian and New Zealand academics, you interviewed a huge cohort of about four, 500 jurors in 86 trials and you were trying to work out how jurors understood and followed instructions given to them by judges. But you then, with ethical approval, drilled down into the information contained in 121 of the interviews that you did over in New Zealand. So what did you learn when you looked closely at those juror interviews? What I found was that while jurors do do their duty with a great deal of care and commitment, some real jurors draw on cultural misconceptions or prejudicial assumptions about sexual violence when they evaluate evidence. In your research paper, you talk about a master narrative that false allegations of rape are common. Tell me more about that. Yeah, the foundation of this master narrative idea is that women commonly make false allegations of rape for revenge or because they regret consensual sex. And that is an attitude that's out there in the community. The Australian Community Attitude Survey in 2021 found that 35% of Australians agreed that it was common for sexual accusations to be used to get back at men. Factually, the idea that there's a multitude of false allegations in court is likely to be untrue. The Ministry of Justice research in New Zealand shows that of cases reported in 2019, only 3% were classified as false allegation or no crime after two years. So they wouldn't even be in court. So I think what happens is that belief that's there in society can then be triggered by defence counsel saying things, using signifiers like cry rape or it's an easy accusation to make, and by repeatedly and vigorously talking to the complainant about lying, about putting on a stellar performance, crying crocodile tears. And that encourages the jury to overemphasise the false allegation. And we had people doing that. So, for example, you know, one juror said girls get good payouts if they can prove rape. They'll be after what they can get. Now, in the juror interviews, was there an expectation that complainants would resist or try to escape or try to get help? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one juror put it as, We expected a consistent message of non-consent, screaming and repeated reiterations of, no, I don't want this. Now, the thing is, it's understandable for jurors to look at the absence of injuries or the absence of resistance as part of their decision on deciding whether an offence has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But if that translates into a general belief that rape can't be proved without injuries or evidence of resistance then the juries are putting too much weight on that evidence. Individual jurors in 11 of the 18 cases stated that the extent of resistance affected their assessment of how credible an allegation was. Yeah, that's right. Was there an expectation amongst the jurors that you interviewed that complainants should immediately report any assault? Yes, yeah. You know, quite a lot of jurors put weight on that and thought that if complainants hadn't reported quickly, that that showed that they might not be credible. In actual fact, in only three of the 18 cases was there immediate reporting to police. That's a really common way for victims to respond. And it's been so well legally accepted that judges can warn jurors that there are good reasons why a complainant might delay and that that of itself doesn't mean it's untruthful. Mm. For example, in one case where the defence vigorously argued that the delay in reporting proved it was untruthful and the judge gave a fulsome warning, 
Some jurors still commented on that, including one juror who said, if she had laid the complaint the next day or the day after, I would have said guilty. And in a child sexual abuse case, a juror said, when you're a little girl, you don't get interfered with and not go to your mummy. They never said anything to their mum. It's all vengeance. So that was definitely an expectation for some people. What about complainant behaviour or, or, or lifestyle choices? So, for instance, if a complainant was drinking on the night when an assault took place? The intoxication one is interesting because it can be relevant to the truth from the complainant because obviously it can affect her, her memory or it can affect the detail of her recollection. But on the other hand, some jurors also used it as a way of victim blaming. For example, in one case, a juror said, I think both parties were at fault in some ways. They were drugged and pissed and in some very bad head spaces. In fact, we decided in the jury room we just wanted to take them and bang their bloody heads together. She struck me as I think she's learned her lesson. So that's the issue is that with these misconceptions, that it's not always black and white, that it's prejudicial reasoning. There may be parts of it which are relevant to the complainant's credibility, but then there can be biased comments like that, which suggest victim blaming and not understanding that, of course, you can be raped if you're intoxicated. I think it was in 10 out of the 18 cases uh, you described some jurors as engaged in victim blaming. What did the jury interviews reveal about their expectations and I guess our expectations as a society of the demeanour of a complainant? So in seven of the 18 cases, jurors suggested that just the lack of emotionality undermined the complainant's credibility. So comments such as anyone would think a rape victim would be extremely traumatised as opposed to acting like a normal girl. Another juror commented on complainants being so strong and assertive and said, maybe I was expecting somebody that had been raped and abused would be upset and shaking. On the other hand, when complainants did appear traumatised, often encouraged by defence counsel, complainants talked about them as being Hollywood, turning on crocodile tears, and especially if the demeanour fluctuated. So one juror said she seemed more upset a year after the fact than when she was in her interview the day after. It was just so obviously I got caught, I cried rape. So, of course, in your interviews, you're asking people all these questions, these set questions, and people are telling you what's going through their minds or what went through their minds at the time. But how do you then assess the extent and the impact of those attitudes on the juror and the jury deliberation process and the ultimate verdict? I mean, we we can all have these thoughts, but at the end of the day, you still might come to the right verdict. That's right. And that's really difficult for us to say. So, It's almost impossible to determine exactly the impact that illegitimate reasoning or um, an overemphasis on certain aspects has. And it's possible that the collective decision-making of jurors helps to smooth some of that out. So it's very difficult to know exactly the impact on these trials. And I think the answer with that, Damien, is that it's good to have this kind of research as well as having mock jury research where we can control the conditions and set up an experiment to change certain variabilities. So, for example, have the same fact situation given to two different groups, but in one there are injuries and in one there isn't. And you can see then the impact of that. But in the real world, it's very hard from a jury study like this to determine that. 
And I guess that's one of the things I wanted to do in in my novel was raise those kind of questions in a very real and accessible way for everyone so that, you know, that came up. No direct quotes, but um, gee whiz, I I, I saw the themes um, coming through. Look, uh, Claire Bayliss, jury researcher and former legal academic and author of the book Dice, which has just been published by Alan and Anwen, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. Now, if this conversation has raised concerns for you, we have contact numbers for a number of services at the program website. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.